Welcome to Oncopharm. I'm your host, John Bazaar. I'm an associate professor of pharmacy practice here at the Bill Gatton College of Pharmacy. I'm recording this on June 6th, 2019, the 75th anniversary of one of the most important days in uh, modern history, uh, 75th anniversary of D-Day. Uh, today, I'm going to talk to you about uh, some of the um, recent information that's come out from uh, ASCO uh, 2019. I've got about six studies to go through, um, and I'm going to try and keep this brief. So uh, just jumping right in, let's get into it. Uh, the first is the Polo study, much maligned study on, uh, on social media. Uh, so this is looking at elaborate uh, maintenance in germline BRCA-mutated pancreatic cancer. Now, there is some data, uh, like phase two data or phase one, um, uh, early, early results looking at uh, Olaparib, a PARP inhibitor for BRCA-mutated solid tumors, uh, including breast ovarian, which we know about the activity there, but also pancreatic and prostate cancer. So there's uh, a good rationale for adding Olaparib uh, to BRCA-mutated pancreatic cancer. Uh, there was a, a phase two study of elaborate and gemcitabine in this patient population that was too toxic to, to move forward to a phase three study. Uh, so makes some sense why maybe maintenance might be tested, which is not a, a thing that we do in pancreatic cancer. Now, germline mutations to BRCA and pancreatic cancer are rare. Four to seven percent of all um, pancreatic cancers, according to the, the New England Journal of Medicine publication, uh, that accompanied the presentation at ASCO. So the way POLO was designed is all patients got full furanox for at least 16 weeks. Um, the way we would typically treat these patients is you would give them chemo uh, until progression. So for some reason, after four months, these patients could stop chemo and go on to a lap rib maintenance uh, or placebo. <clears throat> I guess I don't have a problem with stopping chemo to, to go to something oral for maintenance, but the placebo folks should have continued chemo uh, until disease progression, uh, and then had second-line chemo. Uh, now, a third of the patients actually got six months or more full furanox, but two-thirds did not. Uh, so there was a, me a median progression-free survival uh, improvement of about uh, two-plus months in the elaborative group, modest benefit in progression-free survival, but then no benefit in overall survival whatsoever. The overall survival kept my curves overlap 100%, and the data are about 50% maturity. I don't think we're going to see a difference. Uh, the patients in placebo group were not allowed to cross over to a PARP inhibitor, even though we think that there's activity of PARP inhibitors uh, in this disease state. Uh, eventually, 15% of patients in placebo did get a PARP inhibitor, and still, you know, you deprived half the patients of an active agent, and you still didn't see an overall survival benefit. Anyway, um, I'm not going to go into more right now, but this is uh, a no-go outside of a clinical trial setting. I mean, a lab is FDA approved, but I wouldn't certainly do it for maintenance. Uh, you can hear more critique about this from the Plenary Session podcast, um, which is the only podcast that this podcast follows on Twitter. And if you fill out all that, you get a gold star. Next study, Mona Lisa 7. Now, this was a big story. This made the news. This made the papers. So uh, this is uh, ribocyclib, acyclin-dependent kinase 4-6 inhibitor, in metastatic breast cancer patients and patients who were pre-menopausal or perimenopausal, which is not a commonly studied demographic by itself. Usually it's postmenopausal or pre and postmenopausal. So this was just pre and perimenopausal patients, 670 of them, uh, median age of 44, so younger patients with metastatic breast cancer. So we would expect this to be a more aggressive disease than our, you know, our 70 or 60 year old patients that are postmenopausal. 
So this was a first-line treatment for metastatic or advanced breast cancer, and they were randomized to either endocrine therapy alone, which could be you know, a GnRH agonist like gosrelin plus an aromatase inhibitor or tamoxifen, or endocrine therapy plus ribocyclic. <clears throat> no crossover was allowed in that, although 15% in the placebo group eventually got a CDK inhibitor subsequent therapy. Um, as well as subsequent therapy, roughly the same number in each group got chemo in some way as well. So uh, basically patients kind of got the same treatment, except the ribocyclic group, 100% had cyclin-dependent kinase inhibitors, and the placebo group, only 15% did. Uh, the progression-free survival data for Monolisa 7 were published in Lancet Oncology in 2018, and it showed a hazard ratio of 0.055 that was statistically significant, and the Kaplan-Meier curves are fairly parallel. Maybe they widen just a bit over time, so certainly there is disease activity of cyclin-dependent kinase inhibitors. We know that uh, in metastatic breast cancer. So what's presented at ASCO and published as a companion publication in the New England Journal of Medicine is the overall survival data showing a hazard ratio of 0.71 with a confidence interval of 0.59 to 0.95. So make, made the cutoff for statistical significance. Uh, interestingly, the Kaplan-Meier curves overlap uh, completely. They are superimposed for the first two years, and only after two years do they separate, despite seeing a pretty immediate benefit in progression-free survival. Uh, the median overall survival was 40 41 months, we'll say, 41 months in the placebo group and not reached in the uh, ribocyclic group, so at least 41 months or more, we would say. Um, so, you know, my take-home point on this, there was a, an overall survival benefit. Now, it made the news and everything, um, but this is a slower-growing disease. You have a median overall survival in the placebo group of 40 months. So while it's impressive for us, an indolent disease to see an overall survival benefit, that is true. Um, the overall survival curves do not overlap, or they overlap completely for the first two years. Um, and I'm not convinced that if you randomize patients to endocrine therapy and then immediate, immediate uh, ribocyclic or palbocyclic at the time of progression versus uh, cyclin-dependent kinase inhibitor up front, whether or not you would see that overall survival difference. Uh, the paper talks about how you didn't see an overall survival benefit in Paloma 3. That's a palbociclib study. That's looking at patients who, uh, basically the second line setting and postmenopausal patients. So this is a different subset. It's comparing an apple to a grapefruit, uh, I would say. Uh, you know, in Mona Lisa 7, they're younger. It's a more aggressive disease, most likely. And only 15% got cyclin-dependent kinase inhibitors. So it makes sense that there's an overall survival benefit because uh, the patients with ribocyclin 100% got a cyclin-dependent kinase inhibitor uh, as first-line therapy. Uh, and some even got a second-line therapy, and we didn't see that in the, the placebo group. Um, so, you know, it appears that these cyclin-dependent kinase inhibitors are going to have, you know, certainly an impact on the disease activity. Um, it, to me, this study doesn't mean you have to use ribocyclib. I think palbocyclib probably does the same thing. That's just my personal opinion. And if I were asked for a recommendation, I would select which CDK inhibitor uh, played nicest with their other medications and disease states. So if somebody had a, a risk of QT prolongation, for example, I would avoid ribocyclib, things like that. Okay, so two down. I think we've got four more studies to go. So time-wise, we're doing just okay. The next study, positive study, I think, Keynote 001, or Keynote 1. So this is a pembrolizumab study in non-small cell lung cancer. And what we have now is the five-year overall survival analysis. So 
Brief refresher, if you're not familiar with Keynote 1, pembrolizumab was given to 550-ish, I think exactly 550 patients with non-small cell lung cancer, uh, 100 of whom were treatment naive. So they were on a, a clinical trial of immunotherapy you know, many years ago without getting anything else. Um, Five-year overall survival rate was 23.2%. This is in comparison to the historical five-year survival rate for metastatic non-small cell lung, can non -small cell lung cancer of 5.5%. Now I think that 5.5% is probably higher if you take out the patients who you know, and this this is based off of a reference in their in their paper from a SEER analysis from many years ago uh, in the pre-immunotherapy era, but also probably in the pre-TKI era uh, and pre you know separating patients uh, by histology to receive pemetrexid or not. But let's say that's even 10 or 15 percent. It's still a fairly large improvement in in overall survival with pembrolizumab um, in these patients. Um, so, you know, I think that what we have seen now is proof that immunotherapy does change the natural history of disease for non-small cell lung cancer. Um, I don't think that it's curing in these patients. Um, you know, most of the people who had a response, it was not a complete response. They still had disease five years later, um, but certainly we are making this more of a chronic disease than I think we ever, or at least personally, I ever dreamed that we could. Now, still, it's only 25%. It's not great, but it's a lot better than what it was, I think. If you look deeper at that, if you look at the patients who were treatment naive and had a tumor pr proportion score of more than 50%, so highest levels of pd one expression, that five-year overall survival rate was 30%, one to 49% expression was 15 or 16%. If you had previous treatment, uh, you know, 25% five-year overall survival for the above 50% cohort, one to 49% was 12.6%, and then less than or equal to 1% tumor proportion score or pd one expression, 3.5% five-year overall survival, which would have been worse than the historical uh, historical average or control. But overall, uh, I think promising results for those that do have PD-L1 expression of at least 1% and even more with 50%, and even better benefit if the drug is given upfront to treatment naive, it would seem. Again, this was not a, a randomized study. This was kind of one of the first in humans, human studies. Um, keynote one. <clears throat> okay. The next one I'm talking about is a five-year follow-up of dabrafenib and trametinib. Now, this was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. I don't know if this was presented at ASCO or not, to be honest with you. Um, but this is a, a combination analysis of two uh, dabrafenib-trametinib studies looking at the five-year overall survival. And I was pleasantly surprised uh, with these outcomes. Uh, so just as a refresher for those patients with metastatic melanoma, roughly half will have a V600E mutation in BRAF, and they respond reasonably well to a BRAF inhibitor. Uh, they respond better to a combined BRAF and MEK inhibitor, and that response is usually longer lasting with combined BRAF-MEK inhibition. So this is looking at a pooled analysis of two studies five years later, and what we see here is a four-year progression-free survival of 21% and a five-year progression-free survival of 19%, and I would call maybe both of those 20%. So what we see there is a plateau is there's not much, there were not very many, maybe just one or two progression or deaths of patients. If you made it four years, almost all of them made it five years without disease progression or death. For your overall survival, 37%, dropping just barely to 34% from four to five years, also a plateau. Now, are we curing these people? Fun, but maybe, 
hypable question to ask. Hypable, it's a word, look it up. So the complete response rate in the studies uh, combined was 19%, which is ironically, or not, the exact same five-year progression-free survival rate. Um, now, if you had, if patients had a complete response, all their disease is gone, we don't see it on any of our imaging studies, the five-year overall survival rate was 71% with metastatic melanoma. Um, I was skeptical that, that these TKIs for these patients would do well in any disease because TKIs, even in combination, they work well if you find that mutation, but in, inevitably resistance has always seemed to develop outside of CML. So what I hope we're seeing here is these patients have a complete response rate. All the disease shrinks. I don't think the TKI takes the disease away on its own, like cytotoxic chemo could for other disease states. But what I think is maybe if you can reduce the disease burden that significantly and patients have a healthy immune system, their immune system can then take over and, and uh, you know, provide that long-lasting durable benefit. So that was exciting to see that. The fifth study I'm going to talk about, uh, this was uh, published in JAMA Oncology, also presented at ASCO, looking at neoadjuvant full furanox plus losartan. Uh, it's a single-arm single study from a single center in one of these ivory tower places. And the thing that, that I saw like on Twitter, people talking about was an excellent 61% R0 resection rate, which means you gave them the chemo, you went in for the pancreatic cancer uh, to, to cut out the disease and you got it all out. The margins were negative, it's an R0 resection rate. Um, now, <clears throat> maybe that's the chemo, maybe it's Losartan, but Probably a lot of it is the skill of the surgeon, and the, the skilled surgeons are more likely to be at an ivory tower center. Uh, so anyway, this got you know some hype in the oncopharm community because losartan is a common drug that usually is actually losartan when patients take it. Um, so not really anything practice changing here at all, not at all. Uh, but it's not something I'd heard of, and there's an interesting hypothesis here: is that the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system uh, can increase and impact the tumor microenvironment and increase um, you know, the extracellular matrix and leading to what's kind of like a pseudo biofilm around the pancreatic cancer that prevents cytotoxic chemo from getting to the, the pancreatic cancer cells. And that by blocking the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone syndrome, maybe you can open things up, decrease that extracellular matrix formation and increase delivery of cytotoxic chemo. Uh, now, this is not proof of that by any means. Um, the rationale for this study was based off of a retrospective cohort uh, analysis from this same Ivory Tower Center, uh, looking at patients who were on like our ACEs and ARBs versus those that weren't, and the ones on ACEs and ARBs tended to live longer. Of course, retrospective cohort study doesn't mean anything, but certainly an easy retrospective cohort study to repeat if you are looking for a residency project or something like that. Um, and something maybe to study in a randomized fashion moving forward before this rolls out. <clears throat> okay. Last study I want to talk about is Christine, which was presented at ASCO as well as um, a, a tandem publication in the Journal of Clinical Oncology. And this is in metastatic breast cancer, not, sorry, not metastatic breast cancer, but uh, neoadjuvant treatment of metastatic breast cancer uh, prior to surgery. So this were, these were 450 patients with HER2 amplified breast cancer uh, that were candidates for neoadjuvant chemo. So like clinically, uh, you know, you know, stage two disease and up, and, but not metastatic. And they're randomized to TCHP, so T taxotere or docetaxel, C carboplatin, H herceptin or trastuzumab, P pertuzumab. So docetaxel, 
Carbo, Tress, Tuzumab, and Pertuzumab, or TDM1 plus Pertuzumab. So Tress, Tuzumab, and Tanzine plus Pertuzumab. And the results did not favor TDM1 group. So uh, they were looking at basically um, uh, events that would go towards event-free survival. So those events included local regional progression prior to surgery, invasive disease after surgery, or non-invasive ductal carcinoma in situ after surgery, or death. And there were f only 5.9% event rate in the TCHP group versus more than twice that, 13.9% in the TDM1 and pertuzumab group. And most of the, that difference came from pre-surgery uh, local regional progression. In other words, uh, chemo-based regimen did better than the TDM1-based regimen. Uh, so that, a little bit of a blow to, to TDM1. Um, so something that we should be, I, I think, aware of uh, for patients who are eager to avoid chemo uh, in the neoadjuvant setting, there appears to be a detriment to avoiding chemo for those patients. So that was a quick, quick recap uh, of six studies that I found interesting from ASCO 2019. There were roughly 660,000 studies uh, that were presented, so couldn't dig through them all to present them in a, in a reasonable amount of time. Um, but uh, I hope you enjoyed it. I hope that helped you maybe catch up a little bit on ASCO and everything else. I, I hope your June is not as busy as my June. And um, thank you for listening and, and downloading. Thanks for reaching out. Had a couple nice listeners reach out with, for topics for future episodes that I'm, I'm hoping to, to work into the schedule. Uh, as always, you can follow me on Twitter at FarmDeetNip. Follow the podcast at OncoFarmPod. Uh, you can also find OncoFarmPod on Instagram. Uh, if you're if you're in there and any of the iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, give us a nice rating review. Five stars uh, is, is appreciated. Uh, thanks for listening. And until I talk to you again, remember, doses matter.